this series that we're in, walking through the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to call today's message, Giving Jesus Your Greatest Gift. Giving Jesus Your Greatest Gift. And my hope by the end of this message is that you will know what your greatest gift is in giving to Jesus. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller writes that the human heart is prone to take good things like a successful career, material possessions, love for family, and all of the other things of who we are and who we know, and make them the ultimate things that we live for. He continues by saying that When we make that mistake of making the good things that we have in life the ultimate things that we live for, instead of finding fulfillment and joy and happiness, we gradually become empty, unfulfilled by the very things that we hold as the ultimate. This is not a new thing when you read the Bible, of taking good things and making them the ultimate thing. In Exodus, after God had wonderfully delivered His people from 400 years of slavery and gave them all of the gold and all of the silver from the hand of their oppressors, just two months on in their journey through the wilderness at Mount Sinai, God's people used the very gold that God had given them to create a new God that they worshipped, a golden calf that they could see, a golden calf they created to go before them. Was it that the good things that God had blessed them with they had elevated above Him to become the ultimate to live for. And this isn't just an Old Testament problem. It's as much a New Testament problem (laughs) as an Old Testament one. Because Jesus had to lovingly confront the church at Ephesus with the facts that their hearts had grown cold, that they had lost their first love. Somehow in all of the busyness of life, somehow with all of the good things that they had, they had lost their first love, Jesus. And when you read about that incident in Revelation chapter 2, you see that the church at Ephesus weren't doing anything wrong inherently. They they, they weren't doing anything necessarily that was sinful. They weren't doing anything necessarily that you could point out and say, that is awful. You shouldn't be doing that as a Christian. When you begin to read Revelation chapter 2, you see that Jesus, Jesus' approach to them initially was a good one. He commends them. He commended them for their perseverance. 
He commended them for their hard work. But when you see the picture unfold in that chapter, you see that their good hard work had become the ultimate. And in making the good the ultimate, they had lost their first love, Jesus. When I was thinking about Keller's words earlier this week, his comments reminded me of a moment years ago when I was living in South Africa. And I was attending Bible school there, and on one particular day, I was walking home from my lectures. And as I walked, it was a beautiful day, the birds were singing, the sun was out. But as I walked home that day, a question rose in my heart, and I spoke it out to the Holy Spirit. I'd been praying on my way home for all different kinds of things, using my time to fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and at this moment, a question rose in my heart, and I, I spoke it out freely to the Holy Spirit. And I, I said to Him, I said, Lord, how do I experience more of Your presence? What a question to ask. I think if we went round the room this morning, that would be the longing of all of our hearts, really. The presence of God. That is the, the, the deep desire of all of our hearts. That's what we want. That's why we're here this morning. We long for His presence. And that was my longing. And my question to the Holy Spirit was, how do I experience more of your present presence? Well, in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke directly to my heart. Immediately, He answered the question. It was as if He'd been waiting for me to ask. And He responded directly to me, and I'll never forget the answer that He gave me. He said, Dave, if you want to experience more of my presence, remove the presence of other things. Silence the crowds in your heart, and you'll find me waiting there. Just like Keller points out, the Holy Spirit was guiding me by saying, Dave, you'll always be surrounded by good things. Not bad things, necessarily. Dave, you're going to be surrounded all your life by good things. But don't make the good the ultimate. Don't get distracted by things. Now, important to say this, because the Bible has good things to say about good things. Isn't that great? The Bible wants us to enjoy good things. It's wonderful to know that God gets great joy and pleasure in seeing us enjoy good things in life. Paul, for instance, told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God blesses us with 
all good things to enjoy. Isn't that great? Isn't it great that you don't have to feel guilty when you're enjoying the good things of life? You can enjoy them to the full. You don't have to be looking over your shoulder and wondering, I wonder now if God's got a scowl on His face because I'm enjoying the good things of life. No, enjoy them. Enjoy them to the full. God has given, given us good things, all the many good things of life to enjoy. But it's important within the full picture of Scripture to understand that those good things must never become the ultimate things that we live for that are bigger than the God that gave them. I'm so glad that Paul counterbalances that wonderful statement in 1 Timothy chapter 6 by telling us to also fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our ultimate gaze, the prize of our eyes, must be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Never take your gaze off Him. Enjoy the good things of life that God gives you, but ultimately let your eyes and your gaze be fixed on Him who has given everything to redeem you by His own blood. Hallelujah. As we come to John chapter 12 this morning, John is going to show us a moment in Mary's life where she made plain who her ultimate in life was. Mary had many good things in life, like all of us. She owned one thing, however, that was possibly prized above all things because of its worth. But on this day that John records in John chapter 11, she takes her most precious thing that's worth so much to her, and she lavishes that great possession on the feet of Jesus as she anoints Him in worship. You look through the Gospels, and when any of the Bible writers write about Mary, on the three occasions that they do, they always write about her being at the feet of Jesus. Whilst others are working, whilst others are perspiring, Mary is at the feet of her Lord. She had seen something about Him. She had received something from Him, and it, it had captivated her, it had changed her, and the only position that she could find acceptable at any moment of being in Christ's presence was at His feet. And John records such a moment in John chapter 12. Let's read it together. We'll start at verse 1. And we'll continue just to the verse 3. It says this, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus 
was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I'm sure we've read those words many times before over the years, admiring this incredible gift, admiring this amazing act of worship as Mary anoints the feet of the one that she loves. This woman was completely oblivious. It's obvious to see as you read what John wrote, and you go into that room and watch her act of worship before her Lord. She's oblivious to the social etiquette. She's oblivious to any other distractions around her. Her love and her desire to adore Jesus couldn't be suppressed. When Mark writes about this occasion in Mark chapter 14, he tells us that Mary came into the room holding an alabaster, alabaster flask. And he's specific in telling us that she broke that flask to pour out the oil and to anoint Jesus. It's like Mark wants us to understand that Mary wasn't trying to hold anything back for herself. I'll give you 50%, Jesus, and I'll retain the other 50% of what's in the jar for future use. No, she broke the flask, Mark tells us, and I believe Matthew tells us the same. She broke the flask. She had no intention of keeping any of the contents within that flask, even though it was of great worth and carried great cost. She poured it out in its entirety. She didn't want to save any of the contents for personal gain. She couldn't hold it back. She broke that flask in front of them all and anointed his feet. Now, when I was putting on my aftershave this morning, eau de toilette, I believe, I only did two little squirts. I mean, I didn't break the bottle and pour it all over myself and come in here smelling like roses. It was just two little squirts. I was being economical. I was containing and holding for a future time the contents of that bottle so that I can use it long beyond the moment. I was conserving and will conserve 
because in my mind, it's quite an expensive perfume. So just two little squirts here and there, that'll do. That'll do. That's enough. But that wasn't Mary's mentality. She hadn't come to conserve anything. She had seen something about Jesus that had captivated her life, changed her heart. She didn't know how long he was going to be with them, but she had understood something about him that nobody else understood. She understood that he was soon to leave, and she had to use everything that she had within her possession to express her love for him. John tells us that the contents of this, this bottle, this flask, was equated to a year's wages. That was the cost. It was pricely perfume that she poured out so extravagantly with, with such love. And it would have been brought from commenters believe anyway it would have been brought from northeast India and that's why it was so expensive and Mary like others would have kept such exquisite perfume for the greatest day of their life possibly the day when they would be married but for Mary her greatest day had arrived. Whilst others wanted to celebrate and honor Jesus in their way, Mary wanted to use the moment to honor Jesus, worship Jesus, adore Jesus with everything that she had. She didn't consult anybody. She didn't ask her friends or her family if it would be a good idea. It was the impulse and the longing of her heart. So she took it, broke it, and anointed him. Now, almost immediately, if you know the story, you'll remember almost immediately there was a fierce rejection. There was a cold-hearted, critical response from Judas. The economist, the man, that, was in f the man that, that held the reins of the finances. Immediately, he criticizes her. He can't hold it back. This is so wasteful. This is so wrong. Let me read to you his words from John 12, from verse 4 through to verse 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant? Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said. Not that he cared for the poor. But because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Judas comes out 
seeing her adoration, seeing her worship, seeing the openness of a gift in anointing Jesus. He comes out to coldly criticize her. And it's easy because we stand so far away from this moment to judge Judas. Judas is cold. His attitude is critical. This man is greedy and twisted. His thinking is all, is all wrong. He's holding on to everything that he can. But without the love of God in our hearts, our ways are no different to his. Think about it. If you think about it, our hearts are no different to his without the love and the mercy and the changing power of the Holy Spirit. Before we judge Judas, we have to question our own lives. Like Keller calls us to. We have to ask ourselves if any of the good things we have in life that have been given by God have become the ultimate things that we now live for. It's a good soul-searching question to ask. If they have, the answer is always simple. Go to his feet. Surrender not only the good things, surrender the ultimate thing, your very life, to him. Go to his feet. As I read these words from this encounter in John chapter 11, what I find so wonderful and so beautiful is that Mary didn't get distracted by Judas. His cold criticism tried to break into her adoration. Her, his cold criticism tried to destroy that moment of adoration at Jesus' feet. But Mary would not get drawn away from worshiping Jesus. Jesus was everything to her. And she continued to adore him in silence amidst that cold, harsh comment. She won't respond. She holds herself in complete silence, continuing to rub his feet with that oil and wipe his feet. As she unravels her hair, she wipes his feet in amidst the cold criticism of Judas. She holds herself quietly. Silently anointing Jesus. Many 
would have become offended at that point. Many would have put the flask aside and stood up and said, how dare you? How dare you say what you're saying? How dare you dishonor me? This is my gift that I'm giving to Jesus. This is my moment where I'm anointing his feet. How dare you criticize me for bringing my greatest possession, my greatest gift into the presence of Jesus and anointing him? How dare you? Say what you're saying. You don't know the sacrifice that I am making. You do not know the cost, the worth of this gift that I am giving. And you come in here, you coldly criticize me, you judge me for giving my best to Jesus. How dare you do what you're doing? But for Mary, she didn't want anything. Not even her own rights and her own way to detract from Jesus and his centrality in the room. She responds not. She just worships her Lord in silence, quietly. When the challenges come, thick and fierce, sometimes, most times, it's good. It's good to be silent and to take the blow. How hard it is. How difficult it is to rein in the tongue. It's like a sword that cuts. But to this lady, she took the blow. It mattered not. She was away, worshipping, having given her gift, anointed her feet. It could not go back in the bottle. It was spilt all over him. None of it could ever be conserved. Nothing of that gift that she gave could ever be used for anything else other than its intended purpose on that day of anointing Jesus. She gave it. She gave it all. Jesus did speak up for her. He knew that Judas was a thief. He knew Judas was grasping for everything within his power. And Jesus was very controlled. Even in what he said to Judas, he didn't shame him. He just brought correction. And then they moved on. Verse 7, he said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. What a controlled response. 
he could have fired some ammunition at Judas. He could have let some bombs off. Aren't you so glad? So wise, controlled in his response. After we read and think about Mary's gift of love to Jesus, of giving her all, giving her greatest treasure to the one that she loved the most, it's easy for us to think, well, what could I give? In comparison to her gift, I've, I've thought that many times when I've, when I've read these words. You, 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 you see the picture of complete abandonment and adoration and love, devotion, reverence. You come away, you think, my goodness, what can I give? In the light of such a selfless gift of worship. We may wonder this morning, after reading what we've read, what can we give in comparison to Mary's gift? But the poignant message that we're left with from what John wrote is that we all have a gift of great worth. A gift that can be given to express our love, devotion, adoration, and worship to Jesus. And this gift, this gift is our greatest gift. It's the gift of our lives. Giving your greatest gift to Jesus is giving Him the gift of your life. That's what the oil and the alabaster flask represents. The brokenness of it, the extravagance of it, the pouring of it over Jesus' feet. It represents the giving of your life in complete abandonment and adoration. As you enjoy your life, you're giving it for the glory of God. As you walk through this world, meeting people, greeting people, opening your home, using the full expression of who you are in this life to glorify God. That is the greatest gift that you can give to Him. It's not hiding away in a cupboard or becoming a recluse. No, it's going out into the world with a smile on your face and joy in your heart, even when things are tough, and being in an aroma and a scent of God's goodness even on your darkest day. Your greatest gift that you can give to Jesus is the gift of your life. And the Apostle Paul shows us this in Romans chapter 12. He tells us this. Listen to how, and I love this, listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. 
Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so, so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, developing, uh, brings the best, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. This is how the apostle Paul lived. I believe he woke up every day with an excitement, with an expectation to use his very life as his greatest gift to give to God every moment of every day. Use all of life's situations to honor and worship God. When things were going well for him, when things weren't going well for him, he honored God. And I tell you, you know, we look around this room this morning and I thank God that we, are, we have many, many stories here where lives have stood the test of time, where lives have been buffeted by circumstance and hit hard sometimes and gone into dark valleys. And yet, even amidst all of those circumstances, those very people have honored God with the gift of their life. When, when, when things have been taken away, when life has stripped you raw, I've seen people in this church still stand in the house of God with tears rolling down their eyes, lifting their voice to say thank you to Jesus. That's how you use your life as a great gift. One of the ways how you use your life as a great gift to honor and glorify God when life isn't going how you expect it, and where you stand up, you say, Lord, irrespective of how I feel, irrespective of even how I'm thinking, because my thoughts are all over the place at the moment, irrespective of it all, I will praise you and honor you and thank you for your goodness. Paul was a man like this. Here I'm going to come to a close. We're told in the Acts of the Apostles on one occasion, he was at Philippi with Silas. And they were just preaching the good news of the gospel, using their life as a great gift in that city to bring people to Jesus Christ liberating, saving people by the power of God's Word. And they set a slave girl free from demonic power so her life could no longer be used by evil powers. And as a result of that good work, they got thrown in prison. You read the story, 
Their backs were ripped open. They'd been whipped, beaten. And there they are. They had no control over their circumstances, but they had control. They had control over their heart, attitude, and responses to God. At midnight, in a cold, dirty dungeon, no lights, no room service, nobody to encourage them, in pain, their backs, bodies lacerated, broken, and punished. In that moment, they start praying. In that moment, they start singing. I think it could have been a little bit out of tune because of the pain and the aches and the inflictions that they had. Their prayers, probably a little tear-stained, They encouraged each other in the Lord. And I'm sure they remembered those words that Jesus once said, where two or three are gathered together. There I am in the midst. It doesn't matter where you gather. When you gather in His name, He's there. Even in a prison. Even with your back ripped open. Even when a whole city has come against you, oppressed you, and rejected you. You're in a prison, you're praying, and you're worshipping God, and suddenly there's an earthquake. The prison doors break open, the power of God. The power of God comes into that place, every prisoner's, cha every prisoner's chain falls off. My God, I believe it. I believe it. When I read the Bible, I believe every single word of it. I believe it. It happened. They praised God, and that prison, that prison broke open. The jailer came in, repenting, calling out on God. And as a result, that jailer, in the early hours of the morning, took Paul and Silas to his home. They shared the good news. They had their wounds washed, firstly, by the jailer and his family, they shared the good news of the gospel. The jailer's family got saved. It's amazing. It's amazing what praising can do. And it's amazing where God will lead you to reach those who are lost. And they'll hear your prayers. They'll hear your praise. Heaven only knows where God has led His people and the situations He's put them into that are dark, difficult, and oppressive to reach one, two, three. Heaven only knows. And the glory of that, that day was that they, they saw salvation. Amazing thing is, when they got out of Philippi, Paul didn't say to Silas, Silas, 
my goodness me, we're never going back there again. I'm still carrying the wounds. No, they got set free. Do you know what Paul did? He wrote the book of Philippians, set a church up there, and went back regularly. I tell you what, my God, he used his life as the greatest gift given for God's God's service. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. We're going to close. We're going to close right now. We're going to pray. Have you received God's word this morning? The greatest gift that we can give to Jesus is the gift of our life. Why don't we go from this place this morning and spend some time in His presence when we're alone. Don't look at what other people are doing. Don't think, but they're doing more than me and I'm not doing much. No, never, never do that. Never say that. Never ever say that. Just go to the Lord. Say, Lord, I've heard this morning that I can use my life as my greatest gift given to you. Now, from this moment forward, that is what I want to do. Pray that prayer and you'll see. You'll see how he'll put you in situations where your life can be used as a great trophy and instrument for his glory. He might not send you thousands of miles overseas. It might be a word, a helping hand, a smile, a gesture, even a cup of cold water given in his name has eternal, eternal reward. I'm going to pray, then we're going to stand, we're going to sing. Why don't you guys come up? Hallelujah. What a blessing this team is, eh? What a blessing they are. My goodness me. What a great blessing. What a blessing they've been to us this morning. Lord, I thank you for your precious people. We love being your family. We don't always understand the things that we go through and the things that we face. But somehow, Holy Spirit, every time you rise up within us and you use the very things that are sent sometimes to destroy us and break us down, you use those very things to break open the sweet aroma of love from our spirit that flows to you. Lord, we pray from this day forward that you'd help us to use our everyday lives as a gift to you. The people that we meet, the situations we're in, that we would just we would be that sweet aroma wherever we are of God that when they when they see us when they look at our lives 
they would see the smile of God upon them. And we would be a blessing wherever we go. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said. Now, why don't you stand to your feet, right? We're not going to clap a minute. Just look up, look up to heaven and give Jesus a big smile. You know, we say that Jesus is smiling at us. Let's just give him a big smile. Hallelujah. We're smiling at you, Jesus. You're so good. We love you. We're going to praise you now. And Lord, we're going to go out of this place with joy in our hearts. Our circumstances are going to change. Hallelujah. We're going to rejoice and we're going to use our everyday lives as a wonderful gift to others and to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.